I invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to the book of 2 Kings, chapter 21. 2 Kings, chapter 21. It seems to me that unless there's a big surprise that I can't foresee, next week will be our last Sunday in the books of Kings. This is our... <laughs> Amen! This is our 29th message in this series, tracking through the books of Kings of Israel and Judah, and next week, Lord willing, will be our 30th and last. So it's actually been a short series, much shorter than, say, the book of Romans, which we were in for a year and a half. We've been calling this series the King of Kings in the Books of Kings. We've been calling this series the King of Kings in the Books of Kings, because even as we've learned a lot about Old Testament history, we've learned even more about our unchanging God. The kings go up and down. They are good and they are bad. They are thumbs up and thumbs down. But our God never changes. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And as we've seen, His fingerprints are all over this book. His heart is all over this book. We've learned that when the kings are at their best, they remind us of King Jesus and foreshadow Him. But when the kings are at their worst, they remind us why we need King Jesus. Today we're going to see both kinds of kings ruling in Judah. Both thumbs up kings and thumbs down. And hopefully they both lead us to know our unchanging king better. So let's pray together and then dive into 2 Kings chapter 21. Let's pray. All glory be to Christ, our King. All glory be to Christ. His rule and reign forever will be. All glory be to Christ. All glory be to Christ as we study Your Holy Word. Thank You for giving us these chapters of Holy Scripture. Help us, Lord, to to get into them and have them get into us so that we hear You speaking to us, knowing who You are and who You want us to be, what You have done, and how You want us to respond. We do this for the glory of Christ, and we pray it in His name. Amen. In 2 Kings chapter 21, our focus is on the king of the southern kingdom of Judah. Pop quiz. Who is the corresponding king in the north in Israel? There is no king in Israel. That's right. That's a trick question. Because, friends, there is no Israel. The people in the north have been taken away into exile. It is the saddest thing. It's one of the most striking things as we enter chapter 21, verse 1. There is no mention of the other kingdom as this new king begins his reign. All the other kings had that. When Hezekiah took power, there was still a king in the north. But there is no king in the north when Manasseh begins his reign. He's the son of godly Hezekiah that we learned about last week. 2 Kings chapter 21, verse 1. Manasseh was 12 years old when he became king, and he reigned in Jerusalem 55 years. His mother's name was Hephzibah. Thumbs up or thumbs down? Thumbs down. Two thumbs down. He was nothing like his godly daddy. Look at verse 2. He did evil 
in the eyes of the Lord. Following the detestable practices of the nations the Lord had driven out before the Israelites, He rebuilt the high places His father Hezekiah had destroyed. Get that? Dad tears them down. He builds them back up. He also erected altars to Baal. Baal again. Baal which had been driven out. In the south, He's erecting altars to Baal. And He made an Asherah pole as Ahab, king of Israel, had done. Manasseh is the Ahab of the south. He bowed down to all the starry hosts and worshipped them. He looked out at the night sky and he said, you see those stars? They're all gods. I'm going to worship them. He built altars, where? In the temple of the Lord, of which the Lord had said, in Jerusalem I will put my name. In both courts of the temple of the Lord, he built altars to all the starry hosts. He sacrificed His own son in the fire. Practiced sorcery and divination and consulted mediums and spiritists. He did much evil in the eyes of the Lord. Looks like an understatement, doesn't it? Provoking him to anger. He took the carved Asherah pole he had made and put it in the temple of which the Lord had said to David and to his son Solomon, in this temple and in Jerusalem, which I have chosen out of all the tribes of Israel, I will put my name forever. I will not again make the feet of the Israelites wander from the land I gave their forefathers. If only they will be careful to do everything I commanded them and will keep the whole law that my servant Moses gave them. I almost titled this message, If Only. If only. But the people did not listen. Manasseh led them astray. So they did more evil than the nations the Lord had destroyed before the Israelites. The Canaanites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Stalagtites, the Stalagmites. All those badites. You know that they had been driven away. Worse than them, he says. Worse than them. The Lord said through His servants, the prophets, Manasseh, king of Judah, has committed these detestable sins. He has done more evil than the Amorites who preceded him and has led Judah into sin with his idols. Therefore, this is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says, I'm going to bring such disaster on Jerusalem and Judah that the ears of everyone who hears of it will tingle. We've reached the beginning of the end. For the southern kingdom. Hezekiah had been mostly good. He was at least one and three quarters thumbs up. But his son Manasseh, a descendant of David, took the kingdom down. And he made it like Israel had been, and in some ways even worse, like, like the pagan nations. And so God announces through the prophets that Judah will face judgment. The ears of everyone who hears of it will tingle. You won't believe what you're going to hear. Verse 13. I will stretch out over Jerusalem the measuring line used against Samaria and the plumb line used against the house of Ahab. They were measured. They were found wanting. I'm going to use the same standard with the south. I will wipe out Jerusalem as one wipes a dish, wiping it and turning it upside down. Like after dinner, it's time to clear your plate. What do you do with the extra food? Right? Right? into the trash, into the compost pile. 
I'm going to turn Jerusalem upside down and shake it right into the trash. I will forsake the remnant of my inheritance and hand them over to their enemies. They will be looted and plundered by all their foes because they have done evil in my eyes and have provoked me to anger from the days their forefathers came out of Egypt until this day. This has been a long time coming. God has been so patient with them. So long-suffering. Hundreds and hundreds of years. But this has been coming. Inevitably coming. Moreover, Manasseh also shed so much innocent blood that he filled Jerusalem from end to end. Besides the sin that he caused Judah to commit, so that they did evil in the eyes of the Lord. As for the other events of Manasseh's reign and all he did, including the sin he committed, that's the only time where this phrase also includes including the sin he committed. You can't talk about Manasseh without talking about his sin. Are they not written in the book of the annals of the kings of Judah? Manasseh rested with his fathers and was buried in his palace garden, the garden of Uzzah, and Ammon his son succeeded him as king. Now it's interesting to find out in the book of 2 Chronicles, chapter 33. If you've been reading Kings and Chronicles, as you've been reading Chronicles as we've been studying Kings, you'll see they have different emphases. They're complementary, they're telling the same story, but from a different angle. In 2 Chronicles, we find out that Manasseh actually repented and changed in his later years. Kings is silent on that. It says, it doesn't matter. If you study Chronicles, you find out more about God's grace in this matter. But Kings is emphasizing the national damage, and the national damage has already been done. The author of Kings wants us to know that Judah's judgment is inexorably coming. It is right and it is just because of their wickedness, and it is certainly on the way. What has happened to Israel is now bound to happen to Judah. How long did Manasseh reign? What did it say? 55 years. 55 years. That's the longest of any of these reigns, north or south. And maybe the worst. Certainly the worst in the south. 55 years of that kind of unfaithfulness, of forsaking the Lord, of dismantling all that they were supposed to be, must be answered. Manasseh's son takes over when he dies. Unfortunately, he's a chip off the old block. Verse 19 Ammon was 22 years old when he became king, and he reigned in Jerusalem two years. His mother's name was, was Meshulameth, daughter of Haruz. She was from Jotba. Two thumbs down. He did evil in the eyes of the Lord, as his father Manasseh had done. He walked in all the ways of his father. He worshipped the idols his father had worshipped and bowed down to them. He forsook the Lord the God of his fathers, and did not walk in the way of the Lord. Ammon's officials conspired against him and assassinated the king in his palace. Then the people of the land killed all who had plotted against King Ammon, and they made Josiah, his son, king in his place. As for the other events of Ammon's reign and what he did, are they not written in the book of the annals of the kings of Judah? He was buried in his grave in the garden of Uzzah, and Josiah, his son, succeeded him as king. I always think, what would it have been like to become the king knowing that your father had been so wicked. Ammon probably wasn't the oldest son, right? His older brother was probably sacrificed by his dad. So he gets the job after his dad reigns for 55 years. 
And then he dies after just two. And his eight-year-old son gets the job from there. Chapter 22, verse 1. Josiah was eight years old when he became king. And he reigned in Jerusalem 31 years. His mother's name was Jedidah, daughter of Adiah. She was from Bozkoth. Is he thumbs up or thumbs down? With a grandpa like that and a daddy like that, what is he? Anybody know? He's thumbs up. He did what was right in the eyes of the Lord and walked in all the ways of his father, not Ammon, not Manasseh, but David. Not turning aside to the right or the left. He's two thumbs up. And it was during his reign that they had a biblical revival. Look at verse 3. In the 18th year of his reign, King Josiah sent the secretary, Shaphan, son of Azaliah, the son of Meshulam, to the temple of the Lord. He said, go up to Hilkiah, the high priest, and have him get ready the money that has been brought into the temple of the Lord, which the doorkeepers have collected from the people. Have them entrusted to the men appointed to supervise the work of, on the temple, and have these men pay the workers who repair the temple of the Lord, the carpenters, the builders, and the masons. Also have them purchase timber and dress stone to repair the temple. But they need not account for the money entrusted to them because they are acting faithfully. You get the picture? Josiah wants to be a faithful king. Second Chronicles makes it clear that he starts out making reforms even earlier than this. And one of the things he wants is a restored temple. He wants it back like it was. So he's taking a collection and he's sending money to these faithful contractors who are repairing and restoring things at the temple where his grandpa Manasseh had installed his wickedness. Remember, in both the courts, he had set up altars to the stars, right? So let's get this place back the way it should be. And then something really big happens. Verse 8. Hilkiah the high priest said to Shalphan the secretary, I have found the book of the law in the temple of the Lord. In case you're wondering, that's the title of today's message. I have found the book of the law. Most evangelical scholars believe that this was in fact the book of Deuteronomy. At, at least a piece of Deuteronomy, and maybe the whole Torah. We don't know. But Hilkiah, the high priest, has uncovered the book of the law, a portion of Holy Scripture. Where has it been? It's been in the temple. But it's been hidden. It's been lost. It's been buried. For how long? Well, we don't know for how long. I'd say it's a good guess, eh, 57 years at least have gone by without referencing it much. Ammon ruled two years. Manasseh ruled 55. That's a long time to go without reading your Bible. I just can't imagine. Hilkiah the high priest said to Shaphan the secretary, I have found the book of the law in the temple of the Lord. He gave it to Shaphan who read it. Manasseh had probably said, well, we don't need that. Why don't you put it over there in that back room? Set up another altar to the stars, right there where that book was. Now what? Time to take this book to the king. Verse 9. Then Shaphan the secretary went to the king and reported to him, Your officials have paid out the money that was in the temple of the Lord and have entrusted it to the workers and supervisors at the temple, just like you said. Then Shaphan the secretary informed the king, 
Hilkiah the priest has given me a book. That's like an understatement, isn't it? Oh, by the way. And Shaphan read from it in the presence of the king. When the king heard the words of the book of the law, he tore his robes. He gave these orders to Hilkiah the priest, Ahikam the son of Shaphan, Akbor son of Micaiah, Shaphan the secretary, and Isaiah the king's attendant, go and inquire of the Lord for me and for the people and for all Judah about what is written in this book that has been found. Great is the Lord's anger that burns against us because our fathers have not obeyed the words of this book. They have not acted in accordance with all that is written there concerning us. You see what a turning point this is? Do you feel the urgency that the king feels? Can you imagine not knowing this stuff? He didn't know this stuff. He's the king. And he's having it read to him. And he's saying, we got to find out how serious this is. What has he read? He's read what the king was supposed to do. You know, the king was supposed to actually, when he began his reign, write out the book of Deuteronomy, his own copy, right? He didn't do that. Dad didn't do that. Grandpa didn't do that. Nobody told me, but he was supposed to. They should have. He's read what the kingdom was supposed to be like, what their laws were supposed to be, what the sacrifices were supposed to look like. They've been going on whatever they've heard. And now they've heard from God. He's read about the promises of God. And he's read about the threats of God. And he knows God is serious about both. Do you remember the first time that you heard the word of the Lord? Do you remember the first time that the word of the Lord broke in on your conscience? That you felt it like a fire? I don't. I grew up in church, regularly heard the word of the Lord as both sung and preached. It was just part of the atmosphere in which I lived. I can't imagine 55 years without the Bible. I can't imagine a few days without the Bible. But I can remember times when the word of the Lord became real and strong and fresh to me. When I could hear his voice speaking to me in the scriptures. One time when I was a kid, I remember a message given by an evangelist named Earl Bailey. And when Earl Bailey spoke about sin, I felt the sinfulness of sin. I didn't tear my robes, but almost. And there have been many other times when God has met me in his word. How about you? King Josiah sent a delegation to the nearest prophetess to find out more of what this this trouble means. He understands better than ever before that Judah and Jerusalem are in trouble. How bad's it going to be, he wants to know. Verse 4, verse 14. Hilkiah the priest, Ahikam, Achbor, Shalphan, and Isaiah, Isaiah went to speak to the prophetess Huldah, who was the wife of Shalom, son of Tikvah, the son of Harhas, keeper of the wardrobe. She lived in Jerusalem in the second district. By the way, she's probably the aunt of the prophet Jeremiah who had just begun his ministry. This is also the time period for Nahum, Habakkuk, Zephaniah. Read those books if you want to know what else is going on at this time. But it's Huldah who gives the word here. Verse 15, she said to them, this is what the Lord, the God of Israel says. Tell the man who sent you to me, that's the king, this is what the Lord says. 
I'm going to bring disaster on this place and its people according to everything written in the book the king of Judah has read because they have forsaken me and burned incense to other gods and provoked me to anger by all the idols their hands have made. My anger will burn against this place and will not be quenched. Tell the king of Judah who sent you to inquire of the Lord. This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says concerning the words you heard. Because your heart was responsive and you humbled yourself before the Lord when you heard what I have spoken against this place and its people, that they would become accursed and laid waste. And because you tore your robes and wept in my presence, I have heard you, declares the Lord. Therefore, I will gather you to your fathers and you will be buried in peace before all this trouble begins. Your eyes will not see all the disaster I'm going to bring on this place. So they took her answer back to the king. Short story, it's going to be bad. Judah and Jerusalem have incurred the wrath of God and are going to suffer the disasters that were promised in the book of the law. It will happen, it is certain and sure. Josiah himself will not see it because he's two thumbs up. His heart was soft, it was responsive, and he humbled himself. But the nation will not escape. I've got three points for you this morning. And they are all about how we relate to the Word of God. Three applications about this book. Number one, you've heard me say all three of them before. Read the book. Read the book. That's what Manasseh and Ammon had failed to do, right? You know, it's easy to go one day without reading it and then to have another day go without reading it. And before you know, you've gone a month without reading it and go 55 years without reading it. And they didn't just read it. And Hilkiah, Shalphan, and Josiah did read it. And they didn't just read it to get the information. They, They read it with hearts ready to receive the word of the Lord. Verse 19 says it all. Your heart was responsive. And you humbled yourself before the Lord. Is that how you and I come come to this Word? When you come to this Word, how do you come? Sometimes I come like this. Okay. Do I come with my heart saying, Lord, okay, show me. Open my eyes that I might see wonderful things in your law. Our next hide the word verse is Isaiah 66, verse 2. We'll start it next week. It says this, This is the one I esteem. It's God speaking. This is the one I esteem. He who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. Do you want the esteem of the Lord? Do you want that attaboy? Good job. Yes, I am so happy about where you're at. Do you want the esteem of the Lord? Humble yourself. Have a contrite, a repentant heart and tremble at His Word. Read it. That's what Josiah does to the whole nation. He gathers everybody together in chapter 23 and he reads the whole thing to them. Look at chapter 23, verse 1. Then the king called together all the elders of Judah and Jerusalem. He went up to the temple of the Lord with the men of Judah, the people of Jerusalem, the priests and the prophets, all the people from the least to the greatest, 
and he read. He read in their hearing all the words of the book of the covenant which had been found in the temple of the Lord. Did you ever read Deuteronomy in one sitting? Have you ever had Deuteronomy read to you in one sitting? Can you imagine? 57 years with nothing like this. Really, very few things like it since King David and King Solomon's early years. Who did, who did the reading? The king himself. The king stood by the pillar and renewed the covenant in the presence of the Lord to follow the Lord and keep his commands, regulations, and decrees with all his heart and all his soul, thus confirming the words of the covenant written in this book. Then all the people pledged themselves to the covenant that they just read. They said, we're back in. We're going to do that. Read the book. Friends, do you own a Bible in a readable version in your, in your own heart language? Do you know where it is? Do you have a plan to read it today, to read it tomorrow, and to read it the next day? This is the Word of the Lord. Don't let familiarity with it breed contempt. Don't start tomorrow. Start now. Read it. There's lots of ways to get into the book. It doesn't have to be a Bible reading plan like we got back there. So these are great. And you don't have to read the plan all at once. I like to read the one-year study Bible, the one-year Bible, the green ones back there. But my wife Heather, she just takes one of these reading plans and she reads a little bit every day. Not even the day's worth necessarily. Just, just a little bit. And every few years she just grabs another one. The point isn't read the Bible in a year. The point is read the Bible. There, there, there isn't a wrong way to do it, but there are lots of wrong ways to not do it. Our new Sunday school curriculum. You know, we've done a year. We've done the whole Old Testament in a year. Now we're starting in on the New Testament. Starting next week, grab one of these books. Read along with us. Join us for the Bible study. Read the book. And don't just read it. Do what it says. Here's number two. Heed the book. Did you see what Josiah said he was going to do? It was there in verse 3. To follow the Lord and keep His commands, regulations, and decrees with all his heart and all his soul. Friends, that's obedience. It's not just lip service. It's not just talking the talk. but It's, it's walking the walk. Yes, it's possible to read the Word and not be living it. We need to do both. Not just being a hearer of the word only and then walking away like looking in the mirror and forgetting what you see. It's like when I get up in the morning and I look in the mirror and I see scariness staring back at me. And if I say, okay, well, that's just the way it's going to be. And I walk away, it hasn't done any good. But you look in the mirror and you say, okay, there are changes that need to happen. So I get out the shaving cream and, and trim that thing up. And I trim off the eyebrows so they aren't going like this. Right? Too much information? Probably. Look in the mirror and say, what changes need made? And then make them. Heed the book. That's exactly what Josiah did. This next section, that's just, it's just taking it and doing it. Verse 4. The king ordered Hilkiah the high priest, the priests next in rank, and the doorkeepers to remove from the temple of the Lord all the articles made for Baal and Asherah and all the starry hosts. He burned them outside Jerusalem in the fields of the Kidron Valley and took the ashes to Bethel. 
He did away with the pagan priests appointed by the kings of Judah to burn incense in the high places of the towns of Judah and on those around Jerusalem, those who burn incense to Baal, to the sun and moon, to the constellation, to all the starry hosts. He took the Asherah pole from the temple of the Lord to the Kidron Valley outside Jerusalem and burned it there. He ground it to powder and scattered the dust over the graves of the common people. He also tore down the quarters of the male shrine prostitutes which were in the temple of the Lord and where women did weaving for Asherah. Josiah brought all the priests from the towns of Judah and desecrated the high places from Geba to Beersheba. He desecrated the high places. That's like poisoning the well, right? So you can't use that place anymore where the priests had burned incense. He broke down the shrines at the gates, at the entrance to the gate of Joshua, the city governor, which is on the left of the city gate. Although the priests of the high places did not serve at the altar of the Lord in Jerusalem, they ate unleavened bread with their fellow priests. He desecrated Topheth which was in the valley of Ben-Hinnom, so no one could use it to sacrifice his son or daughter in the fire to Molech. He removed from the entrance to the temple of the Lord the horses that the kings of Judah had dedicated to the sun. They were in the court near the room of an official named Nathan Melech. Josiah then burned the chariots dedicated to the sun. He pulled down the altars the kings of Judah had erected on the roof near the upper room of Ahaz, and the altars Manasseh had built in the two courts of the temple of the Lord. He removed them from there, smashed them to pieces, and threw the rubble into the Kidron Valley. The king also desecrated the high places that were east of Jerusalem on the south of the hill of corruption, poisoning the well. The ones Solomon, king of Israel, had built for Ashtoreth, the vile goddess of the Sidonians, for Chemosh, the vile god of Moab, and for Molech, the detestable god of the people of Ammon. Can you believe they've been there that long? Solomon set them up, and they're still there. Josiah smashed the sacred stones and cut down the Asherah poles and covered the sites with human bones. Even the altar of Bethel, the high place made by Jeroboam, son of Nebat, who caused Israel to sin. Even that altar and high place he demolished. He's headed into the north, into what had been the northern kingdom, and he's making reforms there. He burned the high place and ground it to powder and burned the Asherah pole also. Then Josiah looked around, and when he saw the tombs that were there on the hillside, he had the bones removed from them and burned on the altar to defile it in accordance with the word of the Lord proclaimed by the man of God who foretold these things. Do you remember that? There's been so much water under, under the bridge or over the dam or whatever. We don't even remember it. That's, that's 1 Kings chapter 13. 300 years before this, there had been a prophecy that this would happen, and now Josiah has done it. The king asked, who, what is that tombstone I see? The men of the city says, It marks the tomb of the man of God who came from Judah and pronounced against the altar of Bethel the very things you've done to it. Leave it alone, he said. Don't let anyone disturb his bones. So they spared his bones and those of the prophet who'd come from Samaria. The word of the Lord had come true 300 years later, just as God had said. Verse 19. Just as he had done at Bethel, Josiah removed and defiled all the shrines at the high places that the kings of Israel had built in the towns of Samaria that had provoked the Lord to anger up in the north. Josiah slaughtered all the priests of those high places on the altars and burned human bones on them. Then he went back to Jerusalem. Friends, that's what it means to heed the book. It means to take God's word seriously and to seriously obey it. Now, there's part of me that thinks that all of this should have been a no-brainer to King Josiah, right? You shouldn't need to rediscover the book of the law to know that these idols all need smashed. It's kind of like a biblical, duh. But obviously, he did need it. It was when he was directly confronted by the word of God that Josiah got serious 
about obedience. Which causes me to wonder, what in my life would be obvious to Josiah? What would Josiah say, Matt, that's a no-brainer, Matt. That needs to go now. Smash it. What about you? In what areas are you failing to obey the Word of God? You probably aren't living like Manasseh. You wouldn't want to be here on a Sunday if you were. But Josiah had been trying to clean up his act and his nation, and he's just now getting to smashing the idols. What year of his reign? 18th year of his reign? Some of these idols have been sitting there unnoticed and tolerated for a very long time. Over 300 years for some of them. Oh yeah, well Solomon put that there. It doesn't mean very much. Only a few people sacrifice to it. Only a few people use it for worship. It's, don't worry about that. It's just the thing we do. No, that's got to go. What sins are you letting sit around and, and, and tolerated in your own life that need to get smashed? What is the book saying to you? Heed it. Josiah was reading his Bible and realizing that what they should have been doing all along was this. So they did. Verse 21. The king gave this order to all the people. Celebrate the Passover to the Lord your God as it is written in this book of the covenant. We're just doing what it says. Not since the days of the judges who led Israel, nor throughout the days of the kings of Israel and the kings of Judah, had any such Passover been observed. Biggest in a very long time. But in the 18th year of King Josiah, this Passover was celebrated to the Lord in Jerusalem. Furthermore, Josiah got rid of the mediums and spiritists, the household gods, the idols, and all the other detestable things seen in Judah and Jerusalem. This he did to fulfill the requirements of the law written in the book that Hilkiah the priest had discovered in the temple of the Lord. We're just doing what it said. This Passover, what does the Passover celebrate? The salvation of God's people, right? Their rescue from their bondage in Egypt. They're being passed over by the angel of death because of the blood on the doorposts. And for Christians, every time we think about the Passover in the Old Testament, we're, we're reminded of an even greater rescue in the New. Our salvation because of Jesus' blood shed on the cross, the perfect lamb without spot or blemish. We need reminded because we have failed to keep the law ourselves. And we need forgiveness. We need rescue. We need salvation. Remember, we can't get to God on our own. We can't get there by obeying the Word, by heeding the Word. We're too foregone for that. But we can heed the Word by believing the Gospel of grace. Don't get me wrong today. Don't walk away today thinking that what God expects from you is to earn His favor by obeying His Word. Just try harder. No, the Passover reminded the Israelites that God had saved them. And the cross reminds us that God has saved us by grace through faith, like Dave read just two weeks ago. Not from ourselves, but by, not by our works, but for good works, right? Therefore do good. So that now by faith we can begin to heed the book. And even number three and last, bleed the book. Bleed the book. And by that, I don't mean literally. I mean to so live out what we are reading here that it just becomes, it just becomes a part of us and comes out of us naturally. You know what I mean? I mean like verse 25. 
Neither before nor after Josiah was there a king like him who turned to the Lord as he did with all his heart and with all his soul and with all his strength in accordance with all the law of Moses. This guy Josiah was the real deal. There have been great kings before, like King Hezekiah, but there has not been a king that was as word-centered as Josiah. He was the king most characterized by the Bible. Do you know who John Bunyan is? John Bunyan. Not Paul Bunyan with the blue ox. John Bunyan. He wrote, what's, what book did John Bunyan write? The Pilgrim's Progress. I think that's still the number one best-selling book after the Bible of all time in English. Pastor Charles Spurgeon said this of Pastor John Bunyan, prick him anywhere and you will find that his blood is bibline. The very essence of the Bible flows from him. He cannot speak without quoting a text, for his soul is full of the Word of God. That's what I want for our church. Like if you, if the phlebotomist comes by, they get Bible, okay, out of your vein. Not really. It's a metaphor. If anyone pricks us, the Word of God would come out of us. If anyone even gets around us, the Word of God would come out of us, that we would bleed the book, that we would be Josiah-type Christians, obeying the Word with all of our heart, with all of our soul, with all of our strength, holding nothing back. That's my prayer for us. The saddest thing about this story is that it was too late for Judah. It wasn't enough. You might have thought, well, this is going to avert the disaster. They're going to pull up. The plane's going to pull up and it's not going to hit the mountain. But no, Josiah knew this already. He was told by Huldah that it was coming and for sure. And yet he still led the nation to read the book. Heed the book. Bleed the book. Why? Because it was the right thing to do. We don't read, heed, and bleed the book just to stay out of discipline. We don't obey just to keep from getting swatted. We obey because God has saved us, because God is our Father, because Christ is our Savior, because the Spirit lives within us, because it's the right thing to do. Even if it's not enough to save the nation from judgment. And it wasn't. God is merciful to Josiah, and it doesn't happen during his lifetime, but it was still coming, which we'll see next week. Look at verse 26. Nevertheless, The Lord did not turn away from the heat of his fierce anger which burned against Judah because of all that Manasseh had done to provoke him to anger. Manasseh was the tipping point, the point of no return. So the Lord said, I will remove Judah also from my presence as I removed Israel, and I will reject Jerusalem, the city I chose, and this temple about which is said, there shall my name be. As for the other events of Josiah's reign and all he did, are they not written in the book of the annals of the kings of Judah? While Josiah was king, Pharaoh Necho, king of Egypt, went up the Euphrates River to help the king of Assyria. King Josiah marched out to meet him in battle, but Necho faced him and killed him at Megiddo. Josiah's servants brought his body in a chariot from Megiddo to Jerusalem and buried him in his own tomb. And the people of the land took Jehoahaz, son of Josiah, and anointed him and made him king in place of his father. You can see how the Lord feels about this judgment that's coming. It wasn't plan A. It wasn't what he wanted in his revealed will. He chose this city, and now he's going to reject it. He put his name on this people, and now he's going to remove it. It won't be long until they go into exile. 
Because remember, the book of Kings is a tragedy. It doesn't end well. There are high points in the story for sure. King Josiah is a particularly high point because they recovered the book of the law. They read it. They obeyed it. They didn't turn from it to the right or the left under Josiah's leadership. What a good picture of King Jesus Josiah was in that respect. With all of his heart, with all of his soul, with all of his strength. But the bigger story running is that God always keeps his promises, including his threats. And the Manassehs and the Ammons and all of the nation's idolatries are catching up with them soon. But the good news is that there's an even bigger story that's going on. The good news is that the next week's chapters, while being the end of the books of Kings, are not the end of the story. Because this story itself points to the biggest story of God's forever king, the Lord Jesus Christ. And I'll tell you a secret. I've read the end of the book, and King Jesus wins.